Romans 11, verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Well, you'll say then, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith, do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree... How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience... So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory for ever. Amen. Going to recap a few of the things we said last week uh, from roughly verse 11. And as I say, this is the end of a very closely knit argument. And it's taken us four weeks. This is the fourth to get here. Um... God's plan has been shown here to have, if you like, three stages. Firstly, where God chose Abraham's descendants and they were God's people. There's a long history of that, most of it disaster, most of the Old Testament. Finally, Israel reject Christ and the gospel goes out to non-Jews and Paul says this is to make Israel jealous. So stage two, Israel reject Christ and the non-Jews are brought in, the Gentiles. But at the end of the age, and note this hasn't happened yet, there will come a time of realisation for Israel who will turn to God in repentance. 
And this amazing point was made that if the Jews' temporary fall has brought such blessing to the world of everyone else, just think of what a worldwide blessing it'll be when they're restored. And he then brings in this picture of the olive root. Now, there's an awful lot here that looks as if it's the sort of thing that would be said to you in a garden centre. And I'm not a gardener. But the idea is there is this root of the olive tree. Some of the branches of it have died and been broken off. And the gardener, gardener with a big G, God, has taken meaning the Gentiles, some wild olive shoots. You know the difference between cultivated roses and roses that have just been allowed to run wild. Thorns, branches, massive everywhere, and they hurt if you try and get hold of them. And you can graft a good piece of rose into a basically a bramble, because all the vigour of the bramble then gets into the, the flower that you want. Paul says the Gentiles are like something from an unpruned rose that's actually been grafted into the good root and is now taking some of the nourishment, the root being God's people. But he then says that what God's going to do is to take the the Jews, the natural branches, who actually belong on that root and put them back in again. So that everybody together, as God says, they've all been tied up in disobedience and God's had mercy on the whole lot. Well, that's, that's the plan. Now, we started at verse 17... Paul is here addressing a problem that the Roman Christians were thinking they were a cut above the non-believing Jews. And to be honest, you can understand it. So first of all, Paul says, look, okay, so those branches were cut off and thrown to one side. But don't forget, if the root, God's blessing, is holy, so are the branches, even if they're lying on the ground some distance away. But then he says... If God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. We need to be very careful here, because if you took that verse on its own, you could think, oh, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Lord Jesus, and this this verse is telling me I can be lost again. See, if God didn't spare the natural branches, then he won't spare you either. It's not saying that. Because to say that would contradict so many other scriptures. Take it in context. Those branches that were cut off, they just had a physical link. Do you remember the angry Pharisees who said to Jesus, who you, careful who you're talking to, we've got Abraham as our father. Even John the Baptist warned them about that. Just because they had the DNA, the Bible right the way back, In the middle of Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was written to him for righteousness. The whole business of the people who really were God's people were those among the Jews who believed what God had said, not turned it into a dirty great rule book that everybody had to follow. So because these branches had merely the, shall we say, the DNA connection with Abraham, they didn't have a faith attachment. Consequently, if you swan along, and I don't think any of you would be doing this, but you swan along to church and you think, that's good, isn't it? I've, I go to church on Sundays, you know. Yes, 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 I've done my bit. I've, uh, there's plenty of people who do think that. If that's all it is, that's what this verse is saying. There's, there's going to be another reference in a minute as well, which will clear it up even more. 
And this is developed from verse 22 onwards. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now here it is again. Let's try and face it square on. Can a Christian be lost? Well, there's a few things to say about that. Don't forget the principle that is in 2 Timothy 2, that the Lord knows them that are his. And Paul then says, and if you say you are one of his, then you make sure you live right. God knows them that are his. Now, it's possible to look like a Christian without being one. I don't know what a Christian looks like, we'll come to think of it. Don't ask me to define it, but you can imagine. One of the things about the Freedom in Christ course, you know, is there's an elderly lady in this church. She's a great saint. She's an ex-missionary. She comes from County Durham. And she's quite, sort of, looks quite uptight, quite reserved. Um, She'll smile if you say hello, but she kind of... She's got a kind of don't mess with her look about her, and that's merely what she looks like. She came on the Freedom in Christ course, and she's a different woman. And goodness knows how many years she's been in it. But you can't judge people by what they look like. Possible to be a turn it round. It's possible to be a Christian and not look like one, and it's possible to look like anything but and be one of God's people. Do you know one of my favourite things about Jesus is the number of times he puts his foot in it. I love it when Simon the Pharisee, this is not in the passage, but somebody mentioned it over the weekend and I've been sort of enjoying it. Simon the Pharisee invites a, has a great feast and invites a whole load of people, including Jesus. And this prostitute comes in. Now, this obviously means that there's a completely different way of holding a feast. It doesn't make sense if you have a dinner party and... Some gate crasher comes in. It doesn't sort of work over here. Think, for example, that they would be reclining at table. I believe you used to sort of lie on one side and eat with one hand and prop yourself up. It must have been hideously uncomfortable. That's what they did. Which explains, if you were all round a long table, the feet would be on the outside, which explains why this lady could get at Jesus' feet. But I think as well that the feast may well have been held in a courtyard of a very grand house. And part of it may have been that the sort of uh, the rebel from outside could come in and see how the rich lived. I don't know. Because there, was no, there didn't seem to be any surprise that she was there. The surprise was that a woman with this reputation should be allowed to touch Jesus. Nobody questioned why she was there. Yeah, what are you doing here? You know, there's the door, use it. There's none of that. Simon, I have something to say to you. Watch out if Jesus is ever polite to you. Of course, Master, what is it you want to tell me? And this business about two men who owed a sum of money. One was 500, I don't know, quid, and one was 50. It was a lot more than that in those terms. And it wasn't pounds, and I can't remember what it is. And because neither of them can pay, the creditor forgave them both. Which of the two do you suppose would love him more? This is nonsense, actually. 
And Jesus knows it's nonsense, but it's exactly the sort of arguments the Pharisees used to get into, and Simon would have understood it perfectly. So he's playing Simon with his own bait. So clever. And I suppose it would be the one who'd been forgiven the most debt, yes. Then he puts his foot in it. Do you see this woman? The bloke's been trying to avoid her ever since she came in. And he makes it. I love it. I really love it. So you can't judge from appearances. This woman has obviously met Jesus before and come out of it different and better. But the passage you want to think of here is the one in 1 Corinthians 3 about building on the foundation. Now this, you can forget olive trees for a bit. This is Paul talking about having laid the one foundation of the Christian church, which is Jesus and him resurrected. And he said, I've laid the foundation and we're all builders, but you be careful what you build. If you're building with gold, silver, precious stones, or he then says wood or hay or stubble. You can't build with hay and stubble, you can with wood. But the point is... Every man's work will be tested by fire. And if the fire burns it up, then he himself will be saved, but so as by fire. But you see, they didn't get lost because they'd wasted their time. So what happens? I mean, I'm in my 70s now, so (laughs) most of my life, statistically speaking, is behind me. I'm in pretty good nick, but there we go. Suppose you're in your 20s, and suppose you're a believer... And I know some of you have had ghastly experiences. And up to now, you've managed to fight on the right side since Jesus got hold of you. Just suppose, for the sake of argument, that you decide that after tonight you've had enough. You pack the whole thing in, you stop off for a drink on the way home, and the rest you can imagine. And for years and years and years, you don't want anything to do with us, church, anything like it. And yet, say you're, I don't know, 25 now. And when you're 55, 60, somehow the Lord gets hold of you again. Amazing, that. Now, what's going to happen? Bear in mind that those, what did I say, 35 years that you spent in the desert, between the age of 25 and, yeah, that makes you 60, you were a Christian. This wasn't that you'd been away because you had never been in in the first place and you got saved for the first time. You were what the old divines used to call a backslider. And because of the things you said about Jesus during those 35 years, what a load of rubbish it was and worse, what is God going to do with you? Don't forget that if you come back to Jesus, anything can be forgiven and will be. What would happen, though, is that you've wasted 35 years of building into God's church. But by the time you meet Jesus, we don't quite know. But what strikes me is that by the time you meet Jesus, you will have his mind about it anyway, because you'll be in your resurrection body. You'll be pleased to see it go. But you'll be saved, even if it's as as if by fire. Otherwise, you see, there's rewards. If you'd been faithful all these years and you'd built into the church and you'd used good things and done worthy things, well then, somehow, and only God knows why, we get rewards for that. And you might miss out on a bit of that. 
But you will never be lost if you are one of Jesus' people. So what Paul is doing is just expanding the idea of this plant that's had a load of branches pruned off it and laid to one side, other things grafted in that have been growing. And what Paul says is what would never happen in real horticulture, that those branches that have been dead for years are going to be grafted back in and start growing again along with you. But you'll never be lost once you've come. So he comes to the summary. Israel has experienced, don't forget this whole three chapters, I didn't do Romans 9, someone else did for you. But 9, 10 and 11 is all about, the gospel is now coming to us Romans and all the rest of it. What about all these Jewish people? I suppose God's supposed to have made promises to them, isn't he? Well, has he now decided not to? After all, they crucified Jesus. I mean, what's Paul? Paul is saying no, he's not. God's plans are a bit wider than that, a bit deeper. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. And he points out that it's already actually, you've already read it in one or two, one of the earlier parts of Romans, that as Paul puts it, they're not all Israel which are of Israel, it's the believers. Let me read you a most beautiful poem about the restoration of Israel. And this is actually, I don't want you to look it up, so don't bother, thanks. It's Zechariah chapter 12. I hope I can read it so that you get the beauty of the language and what's being described. This is renewal happening to Israel. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Judah is the area of Israel in which Jerusalem is the major city. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations." Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a firepot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honour of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn 
Each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. Remember that every prophet that Israel has at this point is telling lies and saying that's what God said. On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive he will say i'm not a prophet i'm a farmer the land has been my livelihood since my youth if someone asks him what are these wounds on your body he will answer the wounds i was given at the house of my friends and what does that remind you of i find that the most incredibly moving passage to people who've suffered the way the israelites have and it then goes on about strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So this, this prophecy has seen a whole load of things that have happened at different times. That's the Garden of Gethsemane for you. But the point we can get from this, I know we sometimes say that if I was the only sinner that ever been, Jesus would have died for me. Now there's a certain truth in that, but the Bible never says it. That doesn't mean to say it's not true theoretically, but what I want you to see is that God's plan for the world is far, far, far bigger than just saving me. Some of the songs we sing are all about as if it was only Jesus and me. Um, and that was what Jesus came down for. He, he, he came for nothing else but to save, to save me as we sing the song and the rest of it. That's all very well, but it doesn't begin to scratch the surface. You, I mean, it's terrific. To sort of relish the fact that Jesus did that for me. And I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying let's open our horizons a bit. Let's see God's plan for the world. And Paul finishes, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? In other words, where did he get it all from? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Questions, as far as I can... I have an awful job with questions tonight. Oh, I have come up with three, although really I could only find two and I don't find the third awfully convincing. But number one is... What would you say to a Jewish friend who was angry about your belief in Jesus? Number two is Romans 11.5 from last week says that among the Jews there is at this present time a remnant chosen by grace. How would you recognise one of them? Third one is, was there anything in these two chapters of Romans that you found especially difficult? That's the feeble question. I mean, we don't need to waste too much time on that because it's not an easy passage. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this.